Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host Sean Cheatham. Um, we have a special guest with us today, uh, coming all the way from Canada, Dr. Craig A. Carter, um, author of multiple books, including Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition, Recovering the Genius of Premodern Exegesis. Uh, Dr. Carter, thank you for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Nice to be here. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, before we dive into our discussion today. Uh, well, I was um, I was a Baptist pastor for seven years in two churches in uh, New Brunswick and PEI, Canada, before I went back to do my PhD at uh, Toronto School of Theology under John Webster in the early 90s. And then I, um, I worked for 28 years in two Christian universities, one in uh, Moncton, New Brunswick, and one here in Toronto for the last 20 years. And... Um, I was an academic dean and a professor of theology from the last, from 2004 on, I was professor of theology. And in 2020, I retired uh, from that. And uh, now I'm full-time writing. Uh, they, um, my title is research professor, which is just a title. And um, uh, yeah, I have um, quite a few books under contract right now. And I'm, I'm working on a, um, just a, a bunch of them. Um, several smaller ones, but I'm the main one that I'm uh, working on is uh, at the moment is doing metaphysics with the great tradition. And you mentioned interpreting scripture, so that's the first in the series, uh, which will be a trilogy. And the second is contemplating God with the great tradition, which just came out in uh, this year. And doing metaphysics will complete the trilogy. And it's a project of retrieval and um, resource mod, trying to recover resources from the pre-modern era to help us uh, do theology today. And then uh, the next thing after that is to write a, a, um, a short one-volume uh, introduction to theology in the great traditions. In other words, taking what I've earned in the trilogy and applying it to, a, uh, to doctrine. And um, a couple of other projects, uh, smaller books, uh, one on Providence, one on Christology, and uh, uh, the main long-term goal is a multi-volume theological commentary on Isaiah where uh, where we take what what I the theory and the the history and the approach of interpreting scripture and put it into practice uh, with a major biblical book so that's that's coming down the road wow so it looks like we have a lot to look forward to um, lots of good material um, so kind of a lot uh, going to the discussion of, of metaphysics you know your your focus on that a lot what drove you to focus your studies on the topic of metaphysics as it relates to Christianity? Well, in the um, Contemplating God preface, I give a little history of how this happened. Uh, I was, um, I started out um, with, uh, my, my PhD thesis was on John Howard Yoder. My major theologian was John, uh, with John Webster was, was Bart. And um, I was, I wrote two books, uh, one on Yoder and one on social ethics, in which I basically was uh, arguing for uh, pacifism and a kind of you know, Anabaptist Bartian approach. So I started out to write a book on that. When I got my sabbatical, I started out to write a book on the doctrine of God. And my idea was to take um, uh, what I would now recognize as a social Trinitarian approach to the doctrine of God, uh, following people like Zizioulis and Gunten and Wolf and Grenz, and uh, up and 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 propose that as a um, a foundation for social ethics. So in other words, we we live uh, a pacifist ethic because we are imitating the love between the persons of the Trinity. Um, so I started doing my research, and um, uh, I I began to read the fathers, especially Athanasius, the Cappadocians, Augustine. And the patristic scholarship surrounding the, the fourth century, uh, people like um, Louis Ayers and M.R. Barnes and Rowan Williams and John Baer and Francis Young. And, well, um, I discovered that my the whole 20th century was wrong about the Trinity, mm. uh, wrong in the sense that the the the, the, the whole revival, supposed revival of Trinitarian theology that starts with Bart and Rotter and comes forward through Pennenberg and Moltmann and, and so on and so forth. This whole thing is premised on a false historical narrative. 
And the, the historical narrative is that the East was all about the threeness of God and the West was all about the oneness of God. And that both were equally Nicene, but, but the West over time through Augustine's influence became basically, uh, it lost the real essence of the Trinity and it degenerated into a mere monotheism. Um, and so the 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 idea that the idea of God as three persons in the sense of three centers of consciousness, um, that was seen as Cappadocian. But when I started reading the literature and the the uh, the the history, I realized that modern systematic theology is predicated on a mistake. That this is not historically true. They, there wasn't really any disagreement among the father among the patristic scholars. Uh, the patristic scholars were unanimous that the, you know, um, Lewis Ayer's book, Nicaea and its Legacy, really summed things up well and was a key book for me. But basically he said, so you have a number of different theolo theologies, pro-Nicene theologies around the Mediterranean based in the fourth century, which differ from each other in various ways. And he includes Augustine in here, along with the Cappadocians and others. And all of these pro-Nicene theologies uh, agreed that uh, the only difference between the persons that we can specify is the relations, eternal relations of origin, which are not things that happen in time, hence right. eternal. They are eternal relations of origin. The Father eternally generates the Son. The Father and Son eternally spirate the Spirit. The Son is eternally begotten by the Father. That is the only way we can identify the difference. Other than that, there's one will in God, one power in God, uh, that God is one God in three persons. But the per the idea of persons, the modern concept of individual centers of consciousness has been re read into the word person. The shock was for me that so many systematic theologians got it so wrong and that there just wasn't any, like there wasn't a school of patristic studies that was advocating what these modern people were saying, uh, the, the patristic scholars, be they Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Protestant, Anglican, they were just all, well, Augustine, Gregory of Nyssa, they're saying the same thing. Well, how do you explain that? Like, like how do you how do you deal with the fact that that you know could could a thousand modern systematic theologians be wrong? Well, apparently so. And but why? Like, wh wh how, why, what would, what makes it so easy for modern theologians to believe in this narrative? I mean, that's the question. That's the that's what sparks the metaphysical curiosity that uh, that has driven this project. Is what is it about the modern situation? Like, we know that the doctrine of the Trinity went into an eclipse during the Enlightenment. So during the 18th century. Deism is big. Um, the doctrine of the Trinity is seen as, you know, very questionable. And, and all through the 19th century, pantheism becomes big the, with the romantic re reaction against rationalism. And through Hegel, um, pantheism, panentheism becomes uh, pretty much a dominant uh, force. So you've gone from deism to pantheism, but the Trinity is nowhere in sight. And, and insofar as you have a Trinity, it's, it's, it's historicized. So Hegel's Trinity is, is history unfolding. Well, then when you have the, the doctrine of the Trinity come back to the fore in Bart, Rahner, and so on following World War I, um, it's like a giant ground clearing exercise has been undertaken so that the old doctrine of the Trinity has disappeared completely from view under the rubble. And now the doctrine of the Trinity is being recovered, but it's not the Nicene doctrine that's being recovered. It is a new historicized understanding of the Trinity that fits within the modern metaphysics of the 19th century. So that's where the, the whole thing about metaphysics uh, became, became an issue for me. Um, so I, I, I began to conceptualize uh, the way that theology is. Maybe I should stop there, uh, but I wanna talk about exegesis, doctrine and metaphysics and how they, how they fit together. Because what I think is, is happening is that um, I want to, there's, there's more to the story about how metaphysics, why the metaphysics presupposed by modern systematic theology 
is not Nicene. There's another aspect to the story, but maybe I'll stop there and you can ask me more questions. <laughs> well, no, I think the, the discussion on the Enlightenment is important. Um, and your article, uh, Kant and the Spirit of Revolution, I think was very helpful on that. Um, you know, you talk about David Hume and Kant's influence on uh, the doctrine of God, really, in, in classical Christian metaphysics. Um, so but how did they influence uh, Christian metaphysics with the Enlightenment? Kant was, you know, a product in the Enlightenment uh, specifically. But what was it that um, really drove them to turn away from classical metaphysics and embrace the Enlightenment? Well, um, this is something that uh, uh, explaining that is is like what, I, what three books are about. I mean, it's, it's really hard to put it into a short um, paragraph, but the, um, the enlightenment, as I understand it, is a revival of neo-paganism, of ancient paganism. Mm. We need to understand that, that in the world that the church fathers inhabited, all these ideas like materialism and mechanism and naturalism were all, they all existed. They, they, they were all there. And the central philosophical tradition was Platonism, broadly in, understood. Pla Platonism in the sense that that tradition that began with Socrates and had its roots in the pre-Socratic philosophers, and which went through Plato and, and then his disciple, his student Aristotle, and then through um, the Middle Platonists and the academics and the and the later the Neoplatonists. This is an 800-year tradition that has existed by the time of Augustine. And it is um, the central tradition. And, and then uh, in addition to that, you have Epicureanism and Stoicism. Stoicism is, is, is pantheistic. Epicureanism is very skeptical. Um, you have atomism, which is, which is materialism. So these are, are sort of minor schools of, of philosophy. And the central tradition is Platonism. The church fathers engage Platonism because they see, out of all the, the range of thinkers that they could engage with, well, at least the Platonists have a few things right. At least the Platonists believe that there is something more to the world than just what we experience with our five senses. They believe there's a spiritual reality beyond this world. And at least the Platonists believe that there is such a thing as absolute truth. There, there's, act, there's actually um, a law that governs the world, which is the you know, the basis of science and the basis of rational philosophy. Whereas the, the other schools of, uh, so, of philosophy, so-called, end up leading to irrationalism and materialism. And, and they, really, they really destroy philosophy, but philosophy is preserved within the, the central Platonist tradition. Now, Lloyd Gerson, a historian of Greek philosophy, has suggested that there is something called Ur-Platonism. It's a heuristic construct that he has developed consisting of five points. And that if you are within these five points, you are in the Platonist tradition. If you deny any of these five, you're outside the Platonist tradition. And there's lots of disagreement within the Platonist tradition. So Aristotle has one view of the forms, Plato has another, but they both believe in universals. Um, so what are the five points? Well, if you're a Platonist, you are anti uh, anti-nominalism, so you, are, you, you believe in universals, you're anti-mechanism, you're anti-materialism, you're anti-skepticism, and you're anti-relativism. So if you have any kind of a philosophy that rejects those five things, well, then you're in the Platonist tradition somewhere. So Plotinus is in the Platonist tradition, um, Aristotle is in the Platonist tradition, um, and most of the early church fathers in the fourth century uh, and fifth century, the ones who were responsible for creating the Nicene uh, Creed and, the, and the, the, the basic Trinitarian doctrine of the church and the, and the follow-up to it, the Christological doctrine of Chalcedon, the people in that stream forming those doctrines are in that, that general Platonist stream. So Augustine is a Christian Platonist. That means he's not a materialist. That means he's not a skeptic. That means he's not relativistic, he's not a nominalist, and he's not a uh, mechanist. Um, it doesn't mean that he embraces everything about Neoplatonism. 
he he rejects he 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 corrects Neoplatonism at at the key points that you would expect: creation ex nihilo, um, the incarnation, um, and and the uh, and, and all, a whole bunch of things that flow from those two things. Okay, what I see the Enlightenment doing—that's all to set up the answer to your question. What I see the Enlightenment doing is denying the five antes. The Enlightenment is um, is going against Platonism. The Enlightenment is attacking the central philosophical tradition that has shaped the West, and that is and and I believe that this metaphysical these these some of the, the classical metaphysics that we're talking about here, the metaphysics and the Trinitarian and Christological orthodoxy are so intertwined that you can't you can't separate them without destroying them. So that means that the Enlightenment is indirectly an attack on Christianity, insofar as it is an attack on met the, the metaphysics that Christianity has incorporated into its central doctrine. It's it's indirectly an attack on Christianity, and that's what Hume and Kant are all about. And and what I find very fascinating about Hume is that in order to take the French Enlightenment to its climax and actually reject the um, proofs for the existence of God, he finds it necessary to become so nominalist and so skeptical that he actually rejects the principle of causality. Mm -hmm. And, and when, you when you reject the principle of causality, you are coming very close to rejecting reason itself because the principle of causality is the basis of all science. What's the difference between a superstitious pagan offering blood sacrifices to the tree god and a modern scientist. Well, the scientist believes that things that happen have causes that are natural. Um, miracles are very, very rare. For the pagan, stuff just happens. And 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 it, and it's 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 mysterious and it's hard to understand. And and you know, you 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 go to the priest, he tells you to offer a chicken, you do that, you hope for the best. But science believes that the world. You know, if if somebody died, it wasn't a witch. It was it was something poisonous that the person ate or something. Mm. In other words, the science is looking for a cause. And and what makes you look for a cause? Well, it's basically believing that the creation is created by a rational creator through logos, and that things have natures, and that these natures operate uh, normally, apart from the occasional miracle. They operate consistently so that they can be investigated and studied. So what I'm saying is the enlightenment is an attack on Christianity and it's an attack on science. I put it this way. It's a rejection of natural theology, natural law, and natural science. Um, so, so basically the, the project of recovery, of retrieval is we're, we're, we all want to retrieve well, not all, but you know, there are very there are few Unitarians running around, and there's a few people that deny the deity of Jesus. But most Christians want to retrieve classical doctrine. Like we want to believe in the Trinity, we want to believe in creation, we want to believe in in Christology. So, my my the, the point of my project is, well, we all want to believe in the classical doctrines, but what if modern metaphysical commitments? are in contradiction to those doctrines and make them impossible to hold coherently and rationally, then don't we have to reject the modern metaphysics and embrace the metaphysics that are that were part of the creation of those doctrines in the first place in order to confess them firmly and truly and fruitfully today? And so that's the that's the whole thrust of what, what we're trying to do. The enlightenment is the rejection of Christian metaphysics and my project is the recovery of Christian metaphysics. And my argument is that if you really want to be orthodox today, you, you can't just have the doctrines without the metaphysics. Mm. So you pretty much answered the question I was going to ask um, next about Christian Platonism. I think you fairly well defined sort of what that was and why it's appropriate to use that term. So I will just steal Dan's next question. Um, uh, you talk about Augustine's relationship to Platonism in your book, Interpreting Scripture with a Great uh, great Tradition. Why was this philosophical system so 
influential on Augustine? It was the least bad one up there. Mm. I, I, uh, it, it, if you read book eight of the City of God, you know he's got lots of criticism of the Platonists. Uh, he has one passage where he says, in the books of the Platonists, I read that the one created all things and created all things by reason. But in those books, I did not read that the one uh, sent his son who became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, he, he basically says that, that Christian Platonism was better than materialism, but it needed to be supplemented and corrected by, by special revelation, which, which is what he proceeded to do. Now, some, some people react against this term Christian Platonist, Platonist and they don't like it. And uh, part of it is that, well, there's many reasons for it, but, but part of the problem is that some people think that Platonism means what I would call, and I think what would be technically correct to call, Neoplatonism. And Neoplatonism is the, is the view that the one emanates being from itself, and that becomes the universe. And the, and the, and the being emanates out from the one and goes back to the one. And that's the, that's the cosmology of, of, of the world. So that means that the difference between creation and creature, or creator and creature, is one of degree of purity of being. So it's the, it's the idea of the great chain of being that was so Im influential in the Middle Ages. Now, if, you, if, if I thought that that's what Augustine meant by, by, or what Augustine scholars mean by Christian Platonism, I would be against it too, because, mm -hmm. because I believe in creation ex nihilo. So I believe in a qualitative difference between the being of the, div the divine being and the being of creation. The being of creation only analogically participates in the divine being. It's not, it's not, in, it's not in continuity with it by degrees of purity. It is, it is completely different from it, but it resembles it. The created being resembles the divine being because the divine being created this being by the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And God spoke the world into being. That's, that, 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 the function of the Logos there is not just that it's the, the agent of God's power, so that God speaks the world into existence and, and the Logos makes it happen. But the Logos is the rational principle that animates the creation and gives it structure and order and beauty, which culminates in the image of God in man, which, which, which um, and, and, and no matter how you define the image in detail, I think that the tradition is correct to, to say that part of what that means is our ability to use reason, our, our rationality. That, that human beings are resemble God in that we are able to rationally appreciate the design and order he has put into the creation. Mm. And that's, that is, so there is a connection between divine being and, and creative being, but, but the tradition has developed the whole doctrine of analogy to preserve the creature creator distinction without turning the creation into nothing but meaningless chaos. Yeah, and I think, you know, talking about this from a philosophical perspective, um, you talk about people not liking the word Christian Platonism. I think there is an overreaction. Um, they hear Greek philosophy, they hear Platonism, they hear Aristotelianism, and it's, you know, we, we start running for the hills. Um, but we need to learn to be discerning. Um, and, and we can take some of these principles. And ultimately, these philosophers, I think, were just pulling from what they saw in creation and what uh, maybe had been imprinted the image of God in their, in their being, that this is a natural conclusion that we see in the cosmos. Um, they just didn't have all the parts, obviously, without divine revelation. But I think there is some natural revelation there that would help to reveal that. Um, so I think it's important that we, we do make these distinctions and we are discerning and not have a knee-jerk reaction to terms like Christian Platonism. Um, yeah, and, we, and we, should be aware, we should be aware of the fact that we live in a, in a modern situation where the doctrine of creation has been trashed for two centuries mm, and, yep. and we are really, you know, the air we breathe and the culture we inhabit makes it very difficult to see 
the the world as God's creation. We we therefore uh, have an inbuilt tendency to underestimate general revelation, mm. uh, and and we really like the average Christian who say is coming from a Bartian perspective or uh, many of the disciples of Van Til, uh, uh, unfortunately, they they just don't really have any way of talking about the reality of general revelation. You know, um, people talk like Bart wants to derive all theology from Christology. Well, fine, Christ is the Logos who created the world. So when you're talking about general revelation, that's Christological. And, and uh, but we don't have much of a sense of that. We, the, our, the default position into which we fall without thinking it through carefully is uh, to just re regard the, the world nature as raw material and chaos and we impose human will on it. That's all it is. Yeah. And I think that's where, you know, going back to the enlightenment, we see that turn um, and, you know, let, let's work this up from our own rational standpoint instead of seeing something greater beyond that. Um, but what, in, what would you see the impact of that on the church today uh, more specifically? Well, we, um, you know, transgenderism is a metaphysical issue. Mm -hmm. Like if you don't have a if you don't have a Christian metaphysics, then, then you uh, have no way to say why it's wrong. Because if you, mm -hmm. if you, um, if you, if you, like we know that sex is the biological uh, fact, sex is male and female, that's biology. Gender is the sociological interpretation of biology that's developed in culture. And we, we know that, that gender changes and sex doesn't. And how they relate is the issue. Um, modern people, modern Westerners, basically say sex is meaningless. Hmm. Uh, gender is a uh, individual or a social construct that um, is completely within our authority and ability to define as we wish. Uh, but sex is the biological reality of, of humans as sexual beings, as male or female, is irrelevant and meaningless. Uh, it's just the body is just a, um, it's just a, 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 it's a bunch of raw material for the ego or the mind or the will to impose its, its uh, structure on. And so you can have plastic surgery and, 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 and reshape yourself into someone of the other gender or no gender as you wish. Well, Christianity believes that God created human beings in his image, but we lack any, um, we, we lack the, the language and the conceptuality to, to speak about the, the biology, the, the, what sex as created means. Like, like is, there, is there a universal of maleness in which all male human beings participate? Is there a, a universal of femaleness in which all female human beings participate? Um, if there is, if there's an idea in the mind of God, this is how Thomas Aquinas would understand uh, uh, sex, that there's, a, there's an idea of maleness and femaleness in the mind of God, and every human being participates in one or the other of those universals, mm. which means that the universal is located in a place that we can't get at or control. Mm. Like we are, we are creatures, not creators. And therefore, there's a lot of flexibility. You know, you can have uh, tomboyish type girls and you can have men who have certain feminine characteristics. Human nature is very, uh, has a lot of range and fluidity to it. It's not like every person is and is just, uh, has to be exactly like every other person. There's more than one way to be a man, more than one way to be a woman, but, there still is such a thing as maleness and femaleness. And for and, and there's an interaction between gender and, and sex that develops differently in different cultures and different historical periods and so on and so on. But the question is, is there anything universal about maleness and femaleness that is beyond our control, that, that comes to us as a gift, that we receive 
And we either throw the gift back in the creator's face or we receive it gladly with with thanksgiving. Um, like that is the that is the issue that confronts us today. And and uh, uh, if the church cannot express itself in the terms like what I've just described, I don't know how it how it responds to a to a situation like this. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting that it, how something is seemingly simple, I guess, as having a proper metaphysical framework um, can affect so much. It just basic understandings of science and reality once you undermine those foundations um now you have opened the door up really created a slippery slope that brings in all kinds of different teachings that are really naturalistic and don't really have the grounding in scripture ultimately but mm -hmm. in that metaphysical framework that um, scripture gives us and that probably leads us into our next question why is um having a proper metaphysical framework important for the study and exegesis of scripture well, um, basically, the 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 the, the most important issue there is the question of authorship. Mm. So who is the author of Scripture? And if you are reading Scripture from within a naturalistic perspective, um, then you are whether it's a whether you say it's philosophical naturalism or methodological naturalism. Either way. If you read scripture from within a naturalistic perspective, you can only take into account the human author. Mm. But when you're talking about intention, what does the text mean? Um, you know, if you want to say to somebody, no, you're just reading your ideas into that text. That's not what it means. Well, you have to appeal to the author. If you're in a naturalistic perspective, then the only authorial intention you can appeal to is the human authorial intention. Um, there's a lot of problems that arise from that. For one thing, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to hold to uh, inerrancy in that situation. Mm -hmm. In fact, when when people talk about inerrancy, um, you know, the the objection to it is: look, if you've got forty different authors writing in three languages over fifteen hundred years, you've got you've got Jews, you've got New Testament people. There's no way. That they're going to agree on everything. There's bound to be ways in which they disagree. But then, then the Christian comes along and says, no, but we believe in inerrancy because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then the only way that that can be interpreted in a naturalistic framework is God mechanically overrides the will of the human author and, and, and makes that human author say something that the human author would never otherwise say, which... Um, uh, you know, it, it, in other words, there's got to be a mechanical dictation theory of inspiration developed, or at least that's that's what's thought because it's a naturalistic perspective. So when you think about scripture being inspired within a Christian metaphysics, it's possible to understand uh, that that scripture is a combination of providence and miracle. That providentially, you know, Luke chapter one, God works through Luke's research. Luke interviews eyewitnesses, he collects up stories, he puts it together under the guidance of Paul, we believe, into his gospel. Uh, but then you see John having a vision of Revelation, uh, a vision of heaven in Revelation 4, uh, which clearly is not something you can get from any human means. You know, you, you it's obviously a miraculous revelation. Or, you know, I believe that uh, God revealed to Isaiah the name of the of the king who would issue the decree to let the Jews return home in 538, Cyrus. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's no way that that uh, a prophet could know that except by a revelation. So when you read scripture, you see a combination of providence and miracle, but you see a, a, a it's sort of like salvation. It's like, it's not like soteriology. There's a, there's a um, harmony between the ultimate purposes of God working through the natural world, through the ordinary human means of the of the human author um, as so that in, in such a way that that everything that the human author writes the human author uh, it, it's really belongs to the human author it's it's what the human author intends to write but it's also what God intends to be to be written so that I think that whole 
the whole idea of harmonizing scripture, not seeing scripture as contradictory, seeing it as inerrant, works within a metaphysical framework like this, but it doesn't work within a naturalistic framework. Because ultimately, the appeal for meaning is not the appeal to the human author only, but to the divine author. It's the divine author and his intention that finally determines the meaning of every text. And that's why it can have more than one layer or level of meaning. Because it can mean one thing on as far as the human author could see, but it could yet still have a deeper meaning because of what the human author could not see, but which the divine author could see coming later and, and happening. So I think that um, uh, I, I think that the authorship is the main the main answer to your question. Mm, okay. And, and how would we look at metaphysics as it relates to the doctrine of God? Um, how would we how, why would it be important to apply a proper metaphysical framework as it relates to God when we're talking about simplicity and passability, et cetera? Um, okay. So the church fathers, um, if you're, if you're someone like uh, uh, Gregory of Nyssa or Basil of Caesarea, and you study as some of those guys did in Athens itself, and you study the, the great, philosophy, the literature of your age, of your culture. You learn about the, say, the Aristotelian proof for the existence of God. So let's say that you are convinced that it's true, that there is a first cause to the universe, that there, that, that, that the analysis of reality is actuality and potentiality, that all all cre creaturely things are made up of a combination of actuality and potentiality, and that potentiality can only be actualized by something actual. And so you believe that, um, that the argument that Aristotle puts forward is true, that there must be a first cause, that, which is pure act. Yep, that's right. So you believe there is such a thing as, as, as a... a fully actual, totally actual first cause of all things who is simple, immutable, and perfect. Great. Now the question is, how does Yahweh relate to that person, to that God? Mm. Um, is Yahweh an actor within the cosmos of which that first cause is the cause, which means the first cause is the cause of Yahweh? along with everything else, right? So is that what you is that what you want to preach? The church fathers said, no, that doesn't comport with Genesis 1. Genesis 1 says that Yahweh is the creator of all things. Mm. Well, if, if Yahweh is the creator of all things, and you believe there is such a thing as the first cause, Yahweh's got to be the first cause. Mm -hmm. But the problem then is, oh, but, but, but Aristotle's God is not personal. Aristotle's God is not aware of what's going on. Aristotle's first cause is uh, is um, is an impersonal principle that never moves, an unmoved mover. How can that be the God who speaks and acts in history and reveals himself ultimately in Jesus Christ? So the, the solution the fathers came up with was this: that they said the God of the the, the God of the Bible is the God of the is is not less than the God of the philosophers, but he is more. The God of the Bible is the God of the philosophers, but wonder of wonders, something has happened. The revelation of God to Israel through the prophets and the culminating in Jesus Christ, this first cause has revealed himself to be able to speak and act in history and, and judge and save his people. Who knew? Well, the, Plato didn't know. Aristotle didn't know, because you can't find out about something like the incarnation apart from history. So you, you, a guy like Justin Martyr in the second century is uh, was on a philosophical quest, and he, he explored all the philosophical schools. He came to rest with the Platonists and, and found them to be the best. And he, and, he, and he tells us that he kept waiting for the Platonists. The Platonists would talk about God and how there must be a, 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 an ultimate, the good, the, 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 the source of all things. And, and he says, I kept waiting for them to tell me, so how do we know this God? But they never could. Mm. And then 
he ha he describes an encounter that he has walking along a beach, and he meets this old man who tells him about a group of people called the Hebrew prophets, whose writings are still extant. And they've testified to God, and they 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 purport to be able to lead us to knowledge of this God. And and moreover, this God has spoken to Israel. Mm -hmm. And by the way, uh, looking at it from a, a first century perspective, second century perspective, these Hebrew prophets go back further in time even than Plato and, and Socrates. So if they're older, then they're they're more authoritative. And so he's and, and basically says, and the prophets have prophesied about things that were to happen, and now these things just recently have happened, that uh, God has become incarnate in his son, Jesus Christ, and then he proceeds to tell them all about the New Testament. And Justin Martyr is converted. Mm -hmm. But when he's converted, it's very significant that he, he does not cease to wear the philosopher's cloak because he believes that what he has now found is the true philosophy. And Augustine would have said the same thing. He, he, he would say that Christianity is the true philosophy. In fact, the, the breaking theology and philosophy into two separate academic disciplines is a very modern thing. This is something that wasn't, wasn't recognized. Uh, Augustine would, would talk about Christian philosophy. Thomas could talk about sacred doctrine. But Thomas didn't distinguish, he didn't say, well, I'm going to write a book on philosophy today and I'll write a book on theology next next year. He, it was all one thing to him. And part of the reason why they've been differentiated so strongly in the modern age is simply to get rid of the theological influence on, on philosophy. It's it's to undo what, what the fathers did by bringing them together. Basically, they, they the fathers, the fathers did not want to be in a situation where, um, where Christianity could be interpreted as anything other than a claim to be the ultimate truth. And um, so people talk, people talk about the nefarious influence of philosophy on theology as if this was the world corrupting Christianity. The right way to look at it is to see this is an imperialistic claim that Christians are making, that the God of the Bible is not just the tribal God of the Jews and Christians, but the creator of the whole world. And he is, he is that which the philosophers partly discovered, but the truth about him is so much greater than the philosophers ever knew. And that's what we're proclaiming. Um, we've, we've, we in the modern world don't think that way anymore. Too many modern theologians think of it as well, modernity is the, the real thing, it's the truth, it's so obvious, and we've got to somehow convince these, these people that Christianity can be believed on their premises, that, that Christianity fits into their worldview. Christianity can be adopted alongside the That's not the way the fathers went at it. They, they, went, at, they went at it from a totally different perspective. And I think that um, if they hadn't, I don't think we'd be here talking about them. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that um, if if we forget to recover our understanding of church history, I think that's a, another error where we fall, you know, when we're talking about these metaphysical items, you know, we we derive these things from scripture, obviously, ultimately we see them as taught in scripture, but the understanding them in their historical perspective, I think would help us to not fall into these things in our modern age and understand this is what the church taught. This is how they understood the metaphysical framework taught in scripture. Um, and they didn't see these a dichotomy between the two. Um, I think ensuring that we have that understanding of church history is vital to not losing this um, and making this dichotomy. Yes, and and the um, and part of and one of the key points in the church history is that scholasticism is not Roman Catholic. Mm. Scholasticism there's medieval scholasticism, and there's Thomas Aquinas, and then after the Reformation we see the rise of Protestant scholasticism. And Thomas is very important to people like Francis Turretin and John Owen and, and Junius and all the rest of them. And so the scholasticism, um, this is one of the things I really want to uh, try to write about in the, in the upcoming book. Scholasticism is not just a method of disputations and questions and answers and objections and replies and and so on. It is that. But um, 
there is something far more profound about the nature of scholasticism. And it has to do with the synthesis of faith and reason. It's the, the understanding that reason and faith go together and reinforce, mutually reinforce and support each other. And, and that faith needs reason and reason needs faith. Mm. And, and this, um, this, this, uh, this is the heart of scholasticism, in my opinion. And, and I think that the, 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 the fight between scholasticism and the Enlightenment um, is, is a complicated, um, complicated thing. And a lot of it has to do with propaganda. Um, you know, the, the people like Richard Dawkins today are propagandists and sophists, and they are very similar to the people like Voltaire and the people in the Enlightenment. Mm. The same sort of thing was going on. Like the, even the, the term Enlightenment, where does that come from? Well, it presupposes uh, the Dark Ages. And, and where did this threefold division of, we of Western history come from? That you had the classical, the light of the classical period, then the Dark Ages, and then the Enlightenment. Well, what were the Dark Ages? Well, Christendom. The Dark Ages when all the, the tribes of Northern Europe were converted to Christianity and, and the church ruled and, and you had uh, you know, the synthesis of faith and reason. And the Enlightenment was going back to the pre-Christian paganism that, what, that existed in Greece and Rome that was supposedly the, where all the truth and beauty and goodness was. Well, that's crazy. Your Greece and Rome were not all sweetness and light. They, they were pagan, idolatrous, blood sacrifice offering pagans who, who, who went around murdering people and, and looting their kingdoms and building up an empire. I mean, the idea that, that that was what we need to get back to and suppress all this Christianity stuff, well, I mean, it's still going on. It's, um, it's, it's still happening today, the same kind of idea. But the clash is as much one of propaganda as it is a philosophy. In fact, in many ways, the Enlightenment, you know, I, 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 I hesitate to even talk about Enlightenment philosophers as philosophers because they're really anti-philosophers. Mm. All right, then uh, closing out our discussion here today, was there any uh, last topics you wanted to hit or is there anything that we can pray for you about? Um. Yeah, I um, I have lots of um, uh, I I do have a um, you can pray that I will have clear leading about what to say yes to, what to say no to, and how to organize my time because there's a lot of things that uh, you know this is retirement is not really the word I, I see the next ten years as uh, as really um, a continuation of my career. It's just that I've, I've stopped teaching and administering. And now I'm uh, I'm writing full time, and uh, I I was I was an administrator for a lot of years, and there wasn't much time for scholarship, and so I have a lot of things to catch up on in terms of uh, of writing. So I do um, I do need to, uh, to to have some wisdom about what to say yes to, what to say no to, even though it sounds funny for somebody retired to say that. <laughs> it, it does sound weird. Um, in terms of parting shots um, or topics that we didn't cover, um, I would just say that the um, that the challenge for for us today, as uh, as Christians, is to regain um, a proper understanding of the relationship between exegesis, doctrine, and metaphysics. And this will, one thing I, I, sh, I was going to say earlier, that for what I, what, I, what, I, what I see happening in the fourth century goes like this. You do exegesis of scripture. Now, of course, everybody has to start, you can't, Bible's a big book, you can't study every passage simultaneously. So you start somewhere and you study one passage after another and you try to understand what it means. And exegesis for me is saying the meaning of the passage in your own words. That's basically the goal of it. You're trying to repeat it in, in other words. You're trying to say the same thing in other words. That's what you're after. Um, but you so, you, so you study many passages from Genesis 1 to Hebrews 11 on the doctrine of creation. And as you accumulate exegetical results, you formulate them into a statement of doctrine. So you say the doctrine of creation means such and such. Then your doctrines 
give rise to implications. And this is very important. Uh, biblicism is where you say that the only thing that's important to confess and believe is what the Bible directly says. Well, that's very problematic because the Bible doesn't say the word Trinity, for example. Right. It doesn't say homoousios. The Bible doesn't say uh, natures and persons in, in, the, in Christ. And so there's a lot of things that we think are very important and critical theologically to believe, but the Bible doesn't say them directly. But they can be derived or deduced from what the Bible says. And that's why the Westminster Confession of Faith says that we're obligated to believe everything that is taught in Scripture and that which can be deduced by good and necessary consequence from that. Yes. And so what, when we deduce by good and necessary consequence implications of that doctrine, those have metaphysical implications. Well, the metaphysical implications then gradually build up into a metaphysical picture of reality. And then what we do is the second exegesis. We go, we go back to the Bible and we reread the text that we studied before in the light of this set of metaphysical beliefs that we've derived. And we say, if I had looked at this text with this metaphys these metaphysical ideas consciously in mind, would I have interpreted it differently or the same? And that's the second exegesis. And there you might correct your reading of texts. And it helps you to unify your reading of texts so that the Bible, that the, the truth of, of special revelation uh, is, 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 comes together in an organic and coherent, non-contradictory way. And that's how theology works. And in the modern age, we have separated biblical studies from systematic theology, from theology, from philosophy. We've separated these into three different distinct areas, and we do them one at a time without interacting with the others. And I think that's very problematic. So there's a there's a methodological angle to the recovery of uh, of the of ancient orthodoxy. It's not just recovering conclusions; it's mm -hmm. about recovering methods. And uh, so I, the last thing I would say to you is I think that. Um, Recovering a method by which we study scripture, generate doctrines, deduce metaphysics, use that metaphysical worldview to go back and read scripture again. That in this process, we can gradually purify our minds and be sanctified in the spirit and come closer to God as we grasp the truth more clearly and more deeply. And that's what theology is primarily about. It's about making saints and it is about enabling people to help the church to worship God in spirit and in truth and with their whole minds and hearts. And that's what theology is for. Um, and that's its purpose. And I really want to see that recovered. Amen. Amen. Well, Dr. Carter, thank you again for joining us today. Um, again, please check out, for those who are listening, check out uh, Dr. Carter's works on uh, hermeneutics and the doctrine of God. Um, we'll I'll post links to those on our Facebook page um, so you can access those resources. But with that, thank you for joining us today, everybody. Lord willing, we'll be back next week uh, as we continue our study through an Orthodox Catechism by Hercules Collins. Thank you.